Waves lapped against the striking cliffs of Andai, France, on October 23, 1940. This sleepy border town seemed far away from the world war that was raging across the continent. So the townspeople must have been astonished when a swastika-emblazoned train came to a stop at the station. Adolf Hitler himself exited one of the cars and checked his watch. The man he had come to meet was late. An ancient train finally chugged into the station. Hitler forced a smile when the pudgy, diminutive Francisco Franco exited and met him on the platform. As they shook hands, cameras flashed. Hitler expected to dominate the conversation, to bully Franco into joining the war and to convince him to seize Gibraltar from the British. But Hitler had misjudged the tiny Galician. While Hitler was known for his long-winded diatribes, Franco's were worse. Hitler suffered through three hours of Franco's lectures on Spanish history and the general's favorite subject, his own escapades fighting in Morocco. The Fuhrer later told Mussolini that he would rather have three or four teeth pulled than suffer another discussion with Francisco Franco. To Hitler, Franco seemed like an imbecile who had lucked his way into power. But was he really? Or was he smart as a fox? One who not only managed to keep Spain out of World War II, but to hold on to power even after the fighting ceased. Welcome to Dictators, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This season, we're exploring the reigns of 20th century caudillos Fulgencio Batista of Cuba, Juan Perón of Argentina, and Francisco Franco of Spain. Last week, we examined how Franco rose to become the most decorated general in Spain, and how he leveraged his fame to gain power and guide Spain through its brutal civil war. Today, we'll explore how his regime managed to survive World War II and how his government created one of the fastest-growing economies in the 1960s. We'll also examine the Generalissimo's complex and controversial legacy. All of that is coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This is your last chance to enter the Ohio Lottery's Fun Turns 50 promotion. Score $3,500 and two tickets to the epic party at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, where you could win part of another $400,000 in cash prizes. Enter the new 50th anniversary scratch-off or $50 worth of eligible non-winning $5 or $10 scratch-offs and My Lotto Rewards through the Ohio Lottery app. Hurry up. The last entry deadline is May 13th. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? 
Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Francisco Franco had felt he was a tool of divine providence his whole life. And on April 1st, 1939, who could argue with him? He had just emerged victorious in Spain's nearly three-year-long civil war. Under the new post-war government, Franco would be the chief of state who would preside over all factions of the government. He wielded more power than any ruler in Spanish history. Franco's parliament served no official function. He didn't need them to pass any new laws or decrees. He could do all of that by himself. But even with his iron grip on power, patching Spain back together would be an uphill battle. The Civil War had blown the country's infrastructure to pieces. The economy was in shambles. Spain owed hundreds of millions to its fascist allies, Italy and Germany, and industrial and agricultural production was down across the board. And less than a month after Franco's new government was assembled in the summer of 1939, the outbreak of World War II set the continent on a new course. Even though Franco was more or less allied with the Axis powers, he knew that Spain was too weak to provide any direct military assistance. Instead, he planned to wait until the war was nearly over, at which point Spain would join Nazi Germany and strike the decisive blow against the Allies. At first, this was exactly what Hitler wanted. He claimed it was important for the Axis war effort that Britain and France remain unaware of Spain's allegiances. To that end, Franco announced Spain's non-belligerent status on June 12, 1940. But he couldn't fully commit to neutrality. After all, just like Hitler and Mussolini, he was a fascist dictator, and he couldn't just leave his friends hanging. When the French surrendered on June 22nd, less than two weeks after Franco committed to non-belligerence, he began to wonder if he was taking the correct approach. He feared that the war would end sooner than expected and he would miss out on all the spoils. Fortunately for Franco, he soon had an opportunity to join the fight. To cripple Britain, Hitler needed Franco to occupy Gibraltar close off the Mediterranean, and limit critical shipments of supplies to the British. Hitler and Franco arranged a meeting in Andai, a French coastal town on the Atlantic that borders Spain, but the negotiations didn't go as planned. In exchange for joining the war, Franco wanted Germany to cede control of French Morocco, northwestern Algeria, and much of French West Africa. This, however, was too much for Hitler to give. Those colonies were critical to Germany's war effort. Unable to reach an agreement, the talks fell through. Franco missed his last and perhaps only chance to join World War II. It's unclear, however, if the Caudillo ever actually wanted to join the war. Franco certainly collaborated with the Nazis, but his military was never prepared to provide any real combat assistance. Eventually, German leaders came to suspect that Franco had been stringing them along from the beginning. While he basically sat out the war that ravaged Europe, Franco was able to spend time working with his advisors to solve Spain's endless economic problems. He had weekly meetings with his cabinet ministers that often lasted from the early morning to late at night. No one was allowed to leave, even for bathroom breaks, without Franco's permission. The Generalissimo wouldn't even take bathroom breaks himself. 
there are no reports of him leaving a cabinet meeting to go to the restroom until 1968, when he was 76 years old. Perhaps if his advisors had been able to relieve themselves, they could have come up with better ideas. Instead, he and his cabinet created the National Institute of Industry, a state-owned investment company designed to stimulate production and economic growth. He also enacted heavy rations of resources all across Spain. Unfortunately, these efforts were wildly ineffective, just like all of Franco's economic policies during the war. They led to scarcity, black markets, and starvation among the lower classes. Franco, of course, had no such issue finding food for his family. Being a war-dodging dictator held other advantages for Franco. He had plenty of time for his favorite leisure activities. One of his favorite diversions was hunting. He could often be seen prowling his estate with his attendants, searching for game. Franco was also a movie buff. He also enjoyed screening movies in his palace to large crowds of his friends and government officials. He even wrote a film of his own called Rasa, which was produced in 1942. But the leisurely days of hunting and screenwriting couldn't last forever. Soon, changes in the war drew Franco's focus away from his hobbies. On November 8, 1942, British and American troops landed in Morocco and Algeria. The Allies informed Franco that they had no intention of invading Spain or its territories, but Franco was nervous about having such large forces close to home. For the first time, Franco began to reconsider his pro-Axis leanings. The true turning point came in July of 1943, when Mussolini was overthrown. The Allied invasion of Italy two months later reinforced Franco's belief that fascism was done. Matters came to a head in January of 1944, when the United States decided to suspend all petroleum shipments to Spain. They hoped it would force Spain to stop collaborating with Nazi Germany once and for all. Franco panicked. Without petroleum imports, he feared Spain's miserable economy would collapse altogether and his regime along with it. So he finally gave in and he adopted a policy of true neutrality. At first, Franco explained to the German ambassador that he would still do everything in his power to help the Axis, but he couldn't allow his country to be strangled economically. Eventually, though, Franco's government mostly agreed to stop aiding Germany. But it was too late to save his reputation. When the war finally ended in September of 1945, Franco was in an incredibly difficult position. The victorious Allies knew that Franco had aided and abetted the Axis, and they were suspicious of Franco's regime in general, so they excluded Spain from the newly formed United Nations. On top of that, Spain's economy was still in shambles, no thanks to the sanctions the UN placed on the country after the war. Franco would need a miracle to stay in power. Fortunately for him, relations between the United States and the Soviet Union were in a tailspin. In the coming years, Franco would be able to prove his value as a pawn in the Cold War. Coming up, Franco saves the economy with the Spanish miracle. Hi, it's Vanessa from Parcast. They say there's someone for everyone, a soul to share your secrets with, a companion to grow old with, a conspirator to commit crimes with. 
Starting this February on Spotify, learn about the lethal and legendary lovers who fought the law in the ParCast limited series, Criminal Couples. If you've ever referred to your best friend or beloved as your partner in crime, this exclusive series is for you. Beginning February 1st, join me for a collection of unlawful love stories from shows across the ParCast network. Discover the extreme beliefs of cult leaders Tony and Susan Alamo, enter Fred and Rose West's real-life house of horrors, and experience the madness and motives of the San Francisco witch killers. Fall for the most famous and feared pairs in history in the Spotify original from ParCast, Criminal Couples. Enjoy two-part episodes every Monday starting February 1st. Follow Criminal Couples free and exclusively on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. In 1945... 52-year-old Francisco Franco had seemingly done the impossible. His fascist regime survived World War II, a conflict that toppled nearly every other right-wing totalitarian government in Europe. But he was now the leader of perhaps the most ostracized regime in the world. Western democracies didn't tolerate him because he was a dictator who aided the Nazis. And the Eastern communist states despised him because of his anti-communist policies. Franco faced an even bleaker predicament than he had after the end of the Spanish Civil War. Again, he sought to fix Spain's broken economy, which was even weaker than when he took power six years earlier. He also wanted to convince the Western democracies, specifically the United States, to accept his regime and allow Spain to join the World Bank, United Nations, and other international organizations. These two goals went hand in hand. If the sanctions the UN placed on Spain at the end of the war were lifted, the economy could improve. Relations would then improve as well as Spain traded with the West. It would be difficult, but Franco had an ace up his sleeve. He knew the West would never allow his regime to fall for fear that whoever replaced him might be pro-communist. After North Korea invaded South Korea in 1950, the United States was terrified that communist insurrections would break out in more countries. It became very important to the Truman administration that Spain didn't go red. And the best way to do that was to bring Spain into the Western fold. So on November 4, 1950, the UN General Assembly voted to normalize relations with Spain. A new American ambassador arrived in Spain in January of 1951. Ambassadors from other countries would soon follow suit. It was a shocking and sudden 180 in relations, and Franco was thrilled. The West didn't necessarily like him or his regime, but they accepted that he was valuable when it came to containing the communist threat. With one of his primary goals accomplished, Franco was now able to shift his focus toward internal matters, running his government and repairing the economy. 
Due to the improved relations with the West, Spain's economic situation steadily improved through the 1950s. Franco was now able to trade with economic powerhouses like the United States, which allowed for a better supply of food and created slow job growth. In fact, Spain's GDP would grow by 50% between 1950 and 1958, and it was thanks in part to a massive aid package from the United States. All Franco had to give the United States in return was access to three air bases and one submarine base. This new relationship with the United States, however, wasn't without incident. In 1966, a B-52 collided with a refueling aircraft over Spain, and the United States somehow lost four nuclear bombs after the crash. One of the bombs was recovered intact. Two of the bombs created huge craters near the town where they fell. The final bomb remained missing for close to three months. The Air Force eventually found it at the bottom of the sea, thanks to a tip from a local fisherman. But even that incident paled in comparison to Franco's difficulties in Spanish Morocco. In 1955, the French reinstated the Moroccan Sultan to the throne and agreed to grant Morocco its independence the following year. But the Sultan didn't just want French Morocco liberated, he wanted to free the entire country, including the northern strip of land that belonged to Spain. A strip of land Franco was loath to abandon, even though all his Western allies supported returning the land to the Sultan. With his back against the wall, Franco signed a treaty for Moroccan independence on April 7th. Although it pained him immensely, he couldn't afford a Moroccan conflict without international support. Many of Franco's loyal troops were upset over this decision. Some cadets even burned an image of Franco. Franco calmed the tensions by giving all officers a pay increase, just to be careful. Aside from giving up his stake in Morocco, the second half of the 1950s would be almost universally positive for Franco. His regime managed to completely rescue the Spanish economy. But Franco himself had little to do with the so-called Spanish miracle. It was actually the work of several well-qualified members of his cabinet. Franco had always thought of himself as an economic expert. But even with newfound assistance from the United States and a brief but auspicious beginning, his policies had stalled. So in 1959, he turned to his new ministers for help. Some of the most important ministers were businessmen who wanted to relax the government's economic control. Until this point, foreign investment was rarely permitted, and exports were few and far between. And after a minor recession in 1959, the Minister of Finance recommended dramatically loosening the regulations. Franco was reluctant to accept the proposal. He worried that if he liberalized the economy, it would lead to a liberalization of the people. This could eventually cause a political conflict, even another civil war, and perhaps cause Franco to lose power. But the finance minister was a decorated veteran of the Civil War, and Franco trusted him. He was also aware that this was the only way to save Spain from bankruptcy or an economic depression. So on July 22, 1959, Franco announced a new economic stabilization plan. He accepted the majority of the finance minister's proposals, including allowing foreign investment and export growth. The economy was soon growing again. 
In the 1960s, Spain's economy registered the highest rate of, quote, sustained expansion in all of Europe. It was also a period of rapid cultural change in Spain. As money and tourists poured in, the general population became wealthier, more educated, and more liberal. For the most part, Franco allowed these changes. As it turned out, Franco's fear of young, liberal, and politically engaged college students was well-founded. The more the economy grew, the more young people could afford to receive an education. And the more educated the population became, the more they began to protest Franco's repressive government. Even worse, this new generation wasn't afraid of the Generalissimo. Franco was in his 70s, and as his mental and physical health began to deteriorate, it was only a matter of time until his reign was over. Coming up, Franco enters his twilight years and chooses his successor. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now, back to the story. By the 1960s, Francisco Franco had blundered his way to success as the only pre-World War II dictator still in power in Europe. He somehow convinced Western democracies to accept his regime, and he oversaw the biggest economic boom in Spain in a very long time. But Franco wasn't immortal. And as he aged, he knew he would have to choose a successor to carry on his legacy. But he wasn't looking for another general or prime minister. He was on the search for a monarch. In his quest to return Spain to its glory days of the 1500s, Franco had declared Spain a monarchy in 1947, eight years after he assumed power. He planned to rule as a regent for the rest of his life, and upon his death, a new king, chosen by Franco, would ascend the throne. There was just one problem. Spain's last king, Alfonso XIII, had died in 1941, and there was currently no official monarch or royal family. There were several contenders with claims to the throne. Which one was going to be the next king? The obvious heir was the former King Alfonso's son, Juan de Bourbon. But Don Juan, as he was called, was a dyed-in-the-wool liberal who championed democracy. Franco wouldn't tolerate any discussion of democracy, so Don Juan was out. This left one clear candidate, Don Juan's son, Juan Carlos. Though it would be highly unusual to circumvent Don Juan's claim in favor of his son, Franco didn't see this as an issue, since he wasn't so much restoring the Spanish monarchy as creating a new monarchy of his own. Franco was never one to overplay his hand. Naming Juan Carlos as the heir too early might upset members of the government, so he delayed his decision for as long as possible. But as Spain entered the 1960s, the line of succession would be the least of Franco's worries. His regime would begin to face resistance at home. Franco had been right about liberalizing the economy 
It had liberalized the Spanish people. As wealth expanded, so did education. The number of Spanish universities would double by the mid-1970s, and primary school education would be available to children in even the country's most remote regions. This rapid increase in education also brought with it a desire for a more liberal government, which Franco felt almost powerless to stop. He had allowed the country to change too much. Conservative rural Spain was shrinking while the liberal cities grew. Franco was even losing his traditional allies. For the first time in Spain's history, a Catholic left movement formed within the country. Catholicism had traditionally been a conservative bastion, but now even the church was urging for a less repressive government. This new movement was dominated by the Catholic trade union groups and the Catholic worker youth. These groups encouraged and participated in illegal strikes, but they were protected by church leaders. Franco, a devout Catholic, was reluctant to repress them. To shore up support, Franco decided to remind Spain about the good his government had brought the country. The regime's new slogan for 1964 was 25 years of peace. This coincided with a year-long publicity push, which included a flattering propaganda film about the caudillo called Franco, Ese Hombre. These publicity stunts were popular with Franco's diehard supporters, but they weren't effective in quelling the unrest across the country. Protests from university students, dissident workers, liberal priests, and Basque nationals began to rise. And shockingly, Franco chose not to launch a campaign of repression. Both the left and right took this moderate response to strikes and protests as a sign of weakness in the regime. But Franco didn't see it that way. He claimed that the leftists namely were mistaking serenity with weakness. But behind the scenes, Franco knew that his days were numbered. As the political turmoil increased, his health also took a sharp turn for the worse. In 1969, he informed his cabinet ministers that he was selecting Juan Carlos as his successor. By 1972, the 80-year-old Franco was being ravaged by a laundry list of ailments. Parkinson's disease, phlebitis, and a strange fungal infection in his mouth. As a result, he barely spoke in cabinet meetings and occasionally fell asleep. His memory began to suffer, and it became nearly impossible for him to complete the most basic tasks. For the first time in his life, Franco admitted he needed help running the government. While he still remained as the official head of state, in the summer of 1973, he began the process of selecting a president. He eventually settled on his old friend Carrero Blanco, who became president on June 8th. Unfortunately, Blanco didn't even last the year. In a moment that shocked Franco to his core, Blanco was assassinated on December 20th. Franco despaired over the death of his friend. He cried in front of his ministers and broke down in tears on national television during Blanco's memorial service. It was the first time the public had seen the caudillo show emotion. After Blanco's death, Franco's own health quickly worsened. In July of 1974, he was hospitalized. The government feared the worst and began the process of transferring powers to the next head of state, Juan Carlos. Franco hung on for just over a year until he fell into an irreversible coma in October 1975. 
he finally died on November 20th. Juan Carlos became Spain's king two days later. Franco had expected him to run a totalitarian regime much like his, but others hoped for a turn toward democracy. Initially, Juan Carlos decided to maintain the current government, even as pro-democracy demonstrations and strikes broke out throughout the country. But Juan Carlos was just biding his time. He used the current regime's inability to stop the unrest as an excuse to form a new, more liberal government. The new interim government began reforms that would transition Spain to a constitutional parliamentary monarchy. In late 1976, legislation was drafted to form a democratic system with universal suffrage. These reforms were submitted to the Spanish people in a referendum in December of 1976. 94% of voters supported them. Juan Carlos was able to persuade Parliament to approve the new law, bringing democracy to Spain. The country's first elections in over a quarter century occurred on June 15, 1977. Spain has remained a democracy to this day. Decades later, Francisco Franco still remains a controversial figure. Many say he was no better than Hitler or Pol Pot. He helped start a civil war that took the lives of around 500,000 Spaniards. He launched campaigns of repression that killed thousands more, and he arrested thousands of political prisoners who didn't see the light of day for years. He styled himself after Benito Mussolini and collaborated with the Axis powers right up until the end of World War II. He denied his subjects basic freedoms, and he prevented the rise of democracy in Spain until his death. His regime also became more moderate as the years passed, and his government oversaw a great period of economic growth, which allowed for a more educated public and paved the way for liberalism to spread more on Spanish soil. Franco didn't leave any diaries, so it's unclear if the positive outcomes of the so-called Spanish miracle were intentional or not. Did Franco really want to liberalize Spain's economy, or did he just take credit for something beyond his control? It's not clear. Nevertheless, on October 24, 2019, Franco's body was exhumed from its resting place at the Valley of the Fallen, a memorial to the Civil War Franco himself designed and moved to a family crypt at a nearby cemetery. And with that, Franco was laid to rest once more. Thanks for listening to Dictators. Among the many sources we used, we found Franco, a personal and political biography by Stanley G. Payne and Jesus Palacios Tapias, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Dictators is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Dictators was written by Charles Brock, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Chelsea Wood and Brian Petrus. Dictators stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. 
Hi, it's Vanessa again. Before you go, don't forget to check out the new ParCast limited series, Criminal Couples. From apocalyptic cult leaders to bank-robbing bandits to married mafiosos, these couples give new meaning to Till Death Do Us Part. Enjoy two-part episodes every Monday starting February 1st. Follow Criminal Couples free and exclusively on Spotify.